All right. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us very faith all thanksgiving. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those trespass against us. Lead us not temptation, but the same evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, um, today we're going to try and cover John 9 and 10 um, because they're actually the old stuff um i'm just going to say that this is still happening in that context this is the, the, the last part of that whole feast um and where you'll see that coming out is that um christ will say again he'll bring attention light of the world and it's referencing um what's going on but here, like we said, there's been a like this active trial going on ever since Christ healed on the Sabbath day. Um, there's been people chasing him down. Um, that, as we said, the, to break that rule was a capital offense, right? So in, in Jewish law, he's worthy of death, right? This was a death penalty crime, um, and so they're 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 after him. And in these two chapters, they're going to read. He's going to do it again, um, this time with a character that I like a lot more than the paralytic, um, this time with the man <laughs> born blind. Um, and that's going to be the, the first half. But the second half is going to be Christ's response to the leaders, um, where, like, you got to remember that the Bible, when it's originally written, doesn't have chapters. Like, we put in chapters to make it easier to divide it up. Um, and so, in, in a sense, you can almost ignore that there's a chapter 10, like it almost should read as, as 9 and 10 as one. But before we get into 9 and 10, I want to read Ezekiel 34, because um, as we've talked about before, Christ is coming into a context, right, that the Jewish people are waiting for a Messiah. Um, and a lot of what Christ is doing has, is fulfilling Messianic prophecy, right, Jewish Messianic prophecy. Um, but there's a lot that Christ is going to say today that's referencing this chapter, Ezekiel 34. Um, and so put in mind the context of the Jewish people as a people that part of God's promise to them was that they would be a nation and a people. Um, they asked for a kingdom that wasn't part of God's promise. That was something that they asked for, and God had granted it to them. And so when the people go astray in the Old Testament before Christ came, um, the Lord actually goes and blasts them through the prophet Ezekiel of describing to them what a messed up um, shepherd looks like and then what a good shepherd looks like and says, when the Messiah comes, the good shepherd, he'll look like this. And so you can't read 9 and 10 without knowing Ezekiel 34 because a Jew, a, a learned Jew of the time would have been very aware um, of Ezekiel 34 and might have picked up on the undertones or overtones that Christ is saying in the speech that he's going to give. So I'll read that and then we'll go through 9 and 10. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ho, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat 
You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the crippled you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when some of his sheep have been scattered abroad, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the fountains and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and upon the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on the fat pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the crippled and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will watch over. I will feed them in justice. So I want that in the back of your minds because he's made a clear distinction here where he says the good shepherd is I, God. And we're going to see what Christ says shortly. But to also have in mind in this encounter that we're, we're going to go through right now is that these shepherds that Ezekiel's talking about are the very cast of this show that we're reading about, this play that we're reading, right? The Pharisees, the priests, the leaders. This is who he's referring to. And it seems not much has changed, arguably, even for us today. Um, now, as we get into this, again, I'm gonna, we're going to read it piece by piece. We're not going to read it all in a row. Um, this miracle of healing is in itself... Right, you're all aware of the story. We read it just recently during Lent, right? Is that the act of making a blind man see is something that was already prophesied that the Messiah would do when he, when he comes, right? From Isaiah, we see a few verses. I'm not going to read all of them. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. In another place, it says, "Then the eyes of the eye, the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped." Um, and there's there's many verses, I'm not going to read them all, but again, I want, I want us to realize that Christ is, is entering into a real narrative and doing real things to help the people know who he is. Um, but the context of this miracle in the Gospel of John is different than the way miracles are presented um, in the synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're presented as, as a, an act of wonder, a wondrous act that, that shows who God is. 
Um, but in this gospel, yes, there's a miracle. Yes, there's a sign. Yes, there's a cause of belief. But it's also fitting into this whole bigger theme of light and dark, of seeing and not seeing, of death and, and, and life, um, of darkness and light. And so just like Christ has just been saying, I'm the light of the world, right? You can't see without light that we just talked about that and that symbolism in the last two, two talks. Um, now he's showing that he's light by giving sight, actual sight to a blind man. Right. And he's saying that the world and the Jews with it, right, this is what Christ is saying, are in darkness. And if you want to see, you need to enter the light, which is himself. He's fitting it into that whole structure. Um, and so this contrast of light and dark, which is going to get really hostile, is going to be between the man himself who gets healed and the Jews, meaning the leadership um, of the Jews. Um and it's going to get testy. But I also, as we're going through the miracle itself, kind of want to comment more this time, not as much on the explanation of the feast and the ritual, as much as I really think the story of the man born blind is extremely relevant to us today in our culture today. Um, because I don't know that, that we're as objective as man. The, the man born blind to me is one of the most objective people in the Bible. Um, he's a very factual sticks in his lane, sticks to the facts kind of person, which is probably why I like him. Um, I, I wish I could be more like this guy. So chapter nine, as he passed by, he being the Lord, he saw a man blind from his birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And right off the bat, um, I think is the relevance of, of this question right from the get-go. Because like the disciples, we do this all the time, there's an immediate assumption, right? Like right off the bat, someone's born blind. Okay, what did he do? Right, that, that's the automatic question. And I'm sure that they're well-intended, right? Because the dilemma that they're worried about is if he was born this way, there's no way God did that, right? Because God can't be unjust. Right. And so they're they're concerned about God being blamed for something. And so they they start with that premise. And so then they immediately make their assumption. And this particular assumption, um, I think, is of particular significance, again, to to us, because as, as we know, Christ is going to say it's neither. But they don't have in their mind even the concept that our free will doesn't harm just us, but it harms other people, right? And so if you don't understand that, then you're going to get into theological dilemmas all the time, right? There are certain sins that people worry about today with like, no, they couldn't be born that way because if they're born that way, then God made them that way. And if God made them that way, then it can't be wrong. So it can't be. And then we'll start, I mean, no, then you chose this or you sinned or you messed up or someone else messed up, but this can't be, Right. Whereas the reality is, yes, there can, right? Like, for example, if we, I, I know I overuse this example, if we pollute like crazy and that causes a hole in the ozone and then we have flooding and people die in a massive flood, we did that, right? That was a consequence of a free will, right? If we drop an atomic bomb on a country, which we've done, right? And people die of radiation, have prolonged effects and all of nature is affected, that's not the wrath of God. That's human agency. That's free will, 
right? So sometimes we're able to see it in the quote unquote obvious, but we're not always recognizing that it's also true in the small, right? That we do affect people with our, with our decisions. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him, right? So here Christ is saying that the man's blindness is a manifestation of the work of God, right? Um, that sometimes something ugly might be something that shows God's glory more. In the Gospel of John, the biggest moment of, of a great evil showing the glory of God is the crucifixion, right? That's why in the Gospel of John, it'll be, it's called the, the hour of glory, even though it's a very ugly hour, right? But it's, it's an hour of glory, but we'll talk more about that when it comes. Now, evil doesn't mean that God wills the evil for the glory of God to come, right? So it's not saying this is a good thing and God did something evil so that he could look good right? What's being said here, like St. Paul actually makes fun of that concept. He's like, what will we do more wrong so that the goodness of God shows, right? It's more that it's saying that because of a great wrong, the contrast becomes way more obvious, right? Is that when God steps in as light, it show, it's the biggest contract, contrast to, to pitch black. Um, Actually, St. Athanasius comments on something similar. Um, when people have the control of something or something is out of the realm of control, it makes the person who does a wondrous act look bigger. For example, St. Athanasius says, God made sure that the people chose how to kill Christ. Right? God didn't choose it. He left it to the people. Right, because in leaving it to the people, his resurrection becomes even more compelling. Because if he said, "How about you kill me by poison?" They'll accuse him being like, "Ah, he he chose poison because he secretly had an antidote." Right? If they say like, "Okay, let's strangle him," like, "Oh, he like practiced breathing exercises so that he wouldn't die of suffocation." Right? But when you give it completely over to other person's control, there can be no accusation of anything because you're the one who did it, and so the power of the victim becomes more apparent, right? So something like that is going on in that this was out of the realm of control of anybody. This man's born blind. Um, so then the Lord says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one um, can work. I like, sorry, I'm commenting randomly. I, I like these things because our Lord is actually using some common expressions and, 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 and manners of speech, right? And so this saying that he said of work while it's day, night comes, this is similar to some Talmud writing, some rabbinic text. It was a way of speaking among the Jews. It's almost like, like Christ in our times, I'm not going to make this an equivalent expression, but coming in and being like, too much to do, not enough time to do it right? Or him coming in being like working hard or hardly working as that kind of thing. So it's actually kind of cool to know that like when Christ became man, he really became man. He used their expressions and their ways of speeches and their, and their mannerisms. That's what he's doing. But then he refers back to the Feast of Tabernacles. As long as I am in the world, so long as I got him in the world, I am is the light of the world. As he said this, he spat on the ground and on the ground 
and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, or Shiloh, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, I mean, any Jew reading this would have seen this reminiscent of Elijah sending Naaman to wash in the Jordan. Um, but there's something important about the reference to Shiloh or Siloam in, in, in modern English, um, because there's a prophecy in Genesis that says the, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, right? So again, somebody who's attentive would be like, oh, there's something again messianic going on here, right? That this is a particular reference coming from it. Um, and that's not just a Christian interpretation. Jews interpreted that verse from Genesis in the same way. Um, because, but what's even more kind of symbolic about that scenario, I won't get into the whole history, but the Jews and Isaiah reject Shiloh. Shiloh is a place, one of the first meeting places between man and God. It's a very intimate place. And God makes reference to it a lot. You read a lot during Holy Week, right? Where it's just like, you defiled our intimate place. You've, re you've rejected the place from which I spoke. Um, where we first had our contact, where Abraham and I were, were buddies. Um, and so it's interesting that just like they rejected the original Shiloh, they're rejecting the Messianic Shiloh as well. And from this point on until basically almost the end of chapter nine, we're going to barely hear from, from the Lord. Okay. But there's an intentional act here going on of the Lord making clay. Right, like like the miracle could have happened in, in many other ways. You could have commanded, you could have touched, you could have just said it, right? He could have only had him wash. But the Lord, remember that the that the, the first chapter of John is the first line of Genesis, that this is the new Genesis. Just like God fashioned creation from the dust of the earth, the Lord is intentionally fashioned creation from the dust of the earth. He's trying to make it abundantly clear. I'm the same God, right? I'm the one who creates and I can form new eyes out of nothing. Um, and what's interesting is that he gives him material eyes and then the spiritual eyes, right? He goes in, in, in the same order. Um, but it's also beautiful that God in his mercy is stooping to our level so that we can recognize him. Right, like this, this, this making clay. Like we said, he didn't, he didn't need to do it, right? Um, but it's him saying, "I, I want to help you out. I want to help you recognize me," right? And the reason I'm commenting on that is that I think sometimes we don't recognize that he's doing us a favor when we do those things, and then we start to demand that he always talk to us like that, right? Where it's like, okay, you stepped down and you entered in and you, and, you, and you worked on my level. And we're like, no, now talk to me like that from now on. This is how I want you to do it. I always want you to talk the way that's obvious to me. And I don't know that that's healthy, right? That we, we don't want God to be God. We want God to only to talk like me. Um, or we always want him to explain himself as though he owes us these explanations. And the reality is that um, God is sovereign overall creation. God is completely unbound by us. He has supreme authority over it. He's, he doesn't have to do anything, right? And so we have no right to demand, even though he lets us do it, 
right? Even though he lets us do it, we still need to recognize we don't have, we don't actually have the authority to demand that, right? We need to differentiate that just because someone's nice doesn't mean we should walk all over them, right? And I think we do that to God all the time. He accepts it, but that doesn't make us right for doing it. And so we shouldn't lose our humility that this, this man who's walking around eating and drinking is also the master of the universe who can turn clay into ice, right? That's what was lost on the people, right? Is that he literally does this miracle and they're talking to, the, to him like he's just some dude, right? And he doesn't argue with them. He doesn't say, do you know who I am? Like you should be bowing down if you knew I was about angels all around you morons. He doesn't talk like that. Um, and I think we lose sight of that where we treat people and more importantly, God, like a, a, co a commodity that's at our personal service. So he does the miracle. He sends the guy away. Then the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it's he. Others said, nah, but he is like him. He said, I am the man. They said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the silo and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So here is the first scene of, again, this new trial that's emerging of this miracle, right? First is the people. This is, this is the trial of popular opinion that is like one of the biggest diseases of our time. Okay, where everybody is speaking and nobody knows anything, right? But everybody views themselves as the expert and that should speak about everything. People disagree with each other on such basic facts, even in this story, right? They're disagreeing even on whether or not he's even the guy, right? So there's like, there's no facts here, right? Some people are like, no, 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 that's the dude. Another like, no, it just, it, it looks like him, but it can't be him. Right. And that was the starting point. Now, note that they wasted their time talking to each other. Is it him? Is it not him? As though they would know. And then finally, eventually, he speaks up and says, hi, I'm right here. Right. Like they're talking about the dude like he's not there. Right. And it's like, well, you could easily find the answer to your question if you were actually interested in the truth by asking him. He's right in front of you. Right. And so it's him. It says he speaks up and says, it's me. I am the guy who couldn't see. And the people get really worked up by this, right? And it's really interesting if you pay attention to the wording here, because it's this trial of popular opinion that stirs up the people and they take him to the leaders. It's not even like the leaders summon him. They literally take the guy and like, no, 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 come with us, as though they have any authority to even do that, right? This is the, the mass movements that can be really messed up. So they bring him to the Pharisees. And the question to me is like, how is this any of your business? Right? There is no laws to my knowledge about a blind person entering the temple. There's rules about a, a leper entering into a social commune, but a blind man is allowed to sit wherever he wants. So there was no actual need to take him to the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees, aren't even in charge of the temple, right? Um, I'm just making sure it's the Pharisees. It is. They brought them to the Pharisees, right? Pharisees aren't even priests. Pharisees are people who have other day jobs, and they're just experts in the law, 
right? And yet they're still taking it to these people as though they matter. The question is, do you do this, right? Do we do this? Do we get into the gossip and the social hoopla and participate in trying to cast a verdict on things that don't even concern you? I know that we do. <laughs> I've been on Facebook, right? And so people will get on there and everyone starts giving their two cents and everyone starts yelling at other people. And then if somebody gives an opinion that they don't like, everybody starts screaming at them, right? And then you see how many likes you can get and then you, you share it and then your sharing is a sign of what team you're on. And then you change your Facebook picture and add whatever new filter is going on for the day, right? But we're always participating in the social trial of everything now. Right. And so everything becomes, are you pro this or anti this? And then we bring them to court. Right. And then we ask people their comments. I'll, I'll try and use a neutral topic because there's a lot of topics I could bring up, but they, they'll probably cause a bunch of comments on this as we speak. Um, but when a member of the Canadian government posted that we don't like what Saudi Arabia is doing with ex-member of civil society in Timelik. How is that any of your business if they're running their country? Should Saudi Arabia post, we strongly condemn the Canadian sex ed curriculum? Like, is that their right? Is that in their scope to say, we hereby announce as the Saudi government, we don't like your curriculum? Canadians would laugh and be like, who cares what you think? But somehow we think that we're entitled to opine on absolutely everything in existence, right? And that's what we do. And we take it to our modern Pharisees, like, ha, what do you think, right? Which is its own weird social structure, except that today, instead of Pharisees, we take them to, I don't know, celebrities, and we somehow think that, I don't know, that Tom Cruise knows anything about global warming, right? I don't know why we think that, but we do, okay? So we, we do the exact same thing. If a kid does something wrong or good, do you haul them to the leaders? Why? Right? Again, do you involve yourself in things that are not yours? If it is none of your business, you have nothing to say. Right? It should stop there. And trials of popular opinion are often just plain ignorant, where the people begin to act as a jury and they're not privy to all the facts. And then once they're disproven by something, like, oh, I didn't know. Like, exactly. Right? Because even in a secular trial, the jury is forced to hear the, the data, the evidence from both sides. Right? Even secular justice dictates that. Right? Whereas most people are listening to one side, the one that they want, the one that they like, and yelling and screaming about that. We've got to be very, very careful of that. This is how we kill innocent people like the Lord. Because this issue is what ended up helping stoke the fire that leads to we need to kill him, which we'll see by the end of this section that we're reading. Right? Like, no, dude's got to die, right? Because he is not like us. So they bring him to the Pharisees, 913. The man who had formerly been blind, now is a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. This time we're not aware that it was a Sabbath till we get to the Pharisees because that's the realm of jurisprudence that the Pharisees are very interested in. Okay, so now we come back to those Sabbath day regulations. And when we talked about this in John 5, I won't repeat all of them. We listed some of the specific rules that were being broken. Here the Lord 
is breaking more of those um, because it's not a life or death situation. And the rule said, if not life or death, wait till after the Sabbath. His actual physical act of kneading clay with his saliva to make mud, the act of kneading, kneading with a K, is against the Jewish Torah, right? It's against their, their laws. And so he's guilty like there's no tomorrow. Um, it was among the 39 lists of thou shalt not on their, their Sabbath regulations um, of, of the Jews. Sorry, it was, yeah, I'm, I used that wrongly. I'm glad you called me out on it. Um, it was their own law. It wouldn't be found in the actual scripture. It was their own uh, rules that they set. So now the Pharisees are like, we got him, right? The Pharisees asked, again, asked him how he had received his sight. Pay attention to his objectivity, right? The man just sticks to facts. So they're asking him, how did you receive your sight? He says to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? There was a division among them. So there was already two schools of, of rabbinic thought or, or Jewish thought. Um, the rabbi movement happened a little later, but there's already movements of thought of how to discern if there's a false prophet because they were waiting for prophets, right? And so there's a school of thought was like, if a person breaks a single law, there's no way he's from God. Whereas there's another camp that was, okay, they might not be perfect, but if what they're doing is good, maybe they're from God, right? And so that conflict is coming out right now in the person of Christ, because on the one hand, he's breaking the Sabbath. On the other hand, he's healing the blind, right? So they're, they're torn. Um, but we have these issues today where we try and decide whether somebody is holy or not, because we think we can decide that and that we have the, the know-how to do so. Um, I can say his name now because he passed away. He's a great saint of our time. He died a year ago. The people around him needed to hide that Abu Nengelu smoked because if the people know that he smokes, they'll think he's a fraud, right? Because Abu Nengelu's generation, these people in the 30s and the 40s, they all smoked, right? I don't know if you guys know, in World War II, we used to ship cigarettes to all the soldiers, right? And World War I too. There's a normal staple, it's like drinking coffee. I'll go further. Pope Krodlus smoked cigarettes even in the Pahona. Right, all of those who are who are close to him know that because it wasn't considered weird or wrong or hazard. Right? Does that mean we should smoke? No, they didn't know. Right? But a person would look at that, and I'm mean, use Pope Cross as an example because our church has officially sainted him. Right? Is that if we say, "Oh, a saint could not have possibly done a single thing wrong," then you're in that first school. You're like, "No, then Pope Cross is a fraud." Yeah, we know that he was spirit born, that he was a healer, that he had foresight, foreknowledge, could read thoughts. Right. Or on a practical level, um, if a priest or a servant is caught in sin, we excommunicate them on a personal level. Right. Like, no, he's he's horrible. He's arrogant or he yelled or I'm pretty sure he's inconsistent or this guy did this. And we suddenly they're blacklisted as though they're incapable of having wrong and right within them and still being a good person. Right. We tend to want to just completely make a person black or white. And this is what they're doing. Right. So these these things are things that we do. But is this just judgment? Would you will this on yourself? Because I hope that you don't consider yourself perfect. If you do, then that's its own other issue. But if you do not view yourself as perfect. 
Would you like somebody, let's say you've lied. Do you want somebody to cast you out from the community as a convicted liar? Because you messed up. If you got jealous, do you want to be convicted as this horrible person because you were jealous? Right? If you spoke rudely once, would you like to be cast out as this rebellious, horrible person who has gotten no politeness? You wouldn't wish that on yourself. But we do this to people all the time, right? Is that we're looking like, aha, caught them as though they made a claim that they were faultless, right? We need to be careful of this. So they have their internal division, verse 17. So they said again, again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet, okay? Now a prophet doesn't mean somebody who knows the future. That's something that we, we talk about today as though that's what a prophet is. A prophet is literally somebody who discerns the voice of God, who speaks for God that can say, thus says the Lord. That's all it is. That could include saying something about the future, it could mean about the present. It could be a whole bunch of things. It could be just discerning whether something is from God or not, like COVID. Okay. Now, it's very interesting that they even bother to ask him his opinion because they actually don't care what his opinion is unless it's the same as theirs. Because if he had said, I think he's a liar and a sinner, they'd been very excited, right? And they would have used him as a witness against Christ. Right, he'd be on the side of the prosecution because this is the prosecution side forming. But because he's about to answer, like as we're going to see, his answer is against their opinion. They dismiss his opinion, belittle him, and eventually, by the end of this chapter, they'll have cast him out. Right now, do you do this? Right? Do we do this? Do you deal first of all with everything like it's a trial? Right? Is everything for you a matter of extreme emotion and? What do you think? Because I think we're increasingly as a people becoming like that on every single issue. Um, and are you asking opinions, listening for the answer in order to dialogue? Or are you listening to decide whether or not they're part of your prosecution or not? Right, where the minute the answer isn't matching you, where you're ready to pounce, right? I'd be like, nope, moron, cast him out, right? You're on the other team. Often I'm asked questions or see people ask others questions that are leading questions to make sure I know what I'm expected to say. Abuna, of course you think it's wrong for X, right? Right, so that I'm made aware of if you want to be the right team, which thing I'm supposed to say. Of course, Otsak would never approve of this, right? Right, that kind of, of leading question. Or what do you think, Abuna, about a person who does such and such acts that, of course, are against the gospel as found in Matthew 5 and as found in blah, blah, blah. What do you think, Abuna? Right? Of course, Abuna, we don't have kids Birgao, that come back at 3 in the morning. Right? But do we do this all the time? Right? Being like, obviously, I wouldn't think this, right, to make sure that the other person knows. Or we might say things like, because I'm not a bigot, I think, right, where we preface with this thing to show what team we're on and what we're, what, where we stand in, in the public trial, um, which leads the other person to not want to be a so-called bigot. On the other hand, to not focus just on the negative, 
Can you have the conviction of the man born blind who's able to stay objective? Right? First of all, he hasn't spoken until he was asked. They finally asked him, what do you think? And when he does, he literally sticks to the facts of the case and only gave personal conjecture again when he was explicitly asked for it. Other than that, he remained silent. If you're not asked, don't opine. If you're asked to opine, to give your opinion, find out if it's in your scope to or not. Imagine if someone asked a doctor, but seriously, do you think I have an exhaust issue or do I need to replace my car? That's not a question for the doctor, right? Unless that doctor happens to be a car expert, that is not a medical question, right? So ask whether or not this is even your expertise to even jump in with, with an opinion. So he's told them, I think he's a prophet. 18, the Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and received his sight, right? Their reaction is it can't be. He must, this must, he must not have been blind. This has got to be fake because we can't accept that something good came out of a man who broke the Sabbath. So probably this guy was never blind until they called the parents of the man who received his sight, right? So we had just finished trial number two is now first it was public opinion. Then it was the Pharisees with the guy. Now it's the parents. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see as if they know? His parents answered, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he must be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So third phase of trial, parents are brought in as witnesses, they're like, maybe the, maybe the parents will be part of the prosecution, right? And the parents are trying to be objective and please the Pharisees at the same time. So they have trepidation in their voices because they're afraid of the reprisal if they're on the wrong stream. So to play it safe, they sell off their son, right? Like, we know it's our kid. We know he's blind. That we, our knowledge stops there, right? He's, he's old enough. He's not 10. He can go talk for himself. You guys should, should talk to him. And this is an important example because I think there are times when you're speaking the truth, but you're not speaking the truth with honesty or integrity. What the parents said was all factual, right? There's nothing that they said that was not true, right? It was all the truth. But you're speaking to lead somebody in a particular direction or to avoid a confrontation that sometimes is necessary, not always. Sometimes we speak the truth in pieces. We say everything true to get someone in trouble. I know that that person was there when the crime happened, even though I might know fully well the person didn't participate in the crime. But my adding that fact, which was true, is being said, a true statement is being said because I want them to think this person was part of this problem, right? Being truthful involves words, yes, but it also involves omissions and intentions, right? I can speak true words and have an intentionally omit something or have a wrong intention that makes what I'm saying false. Something very telling about this whole situation is that it says that the Jews had already made a decision that if anyone confesses him to be Christ, he has to be put out of the synagogue. This is very interesting because a public verdict had been made without even having had the trial yet. 
right? They've already made a verdict that if anyone decides that this is the Messiah, they're to be kicked out of, of the church, the assembly, right? There's already a formal rule that Jesus is not allowed to be who he says he is. How is that for justice, right? I think this is very prophetic of our times. It's just political or popular justice, but it's not justice. But again, do we throw out the words, I don't know, ask him, when the real reason we're saying that is self-preservation, right? Make sure that the truth, the gospel, comes first, because whatever is actually true will always prevail. They could say whatever they want about Christ. They could condemn him. Christ remained God. He was going to end up rising from the dead, right? Nothing that they said or did was going to prevent him from being who he was. So you might have enjoyed the social movement order in the moment, but things suck when reality comes out. So for the second time, they're just going nuts now. They called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Okay. Now this give glory to God or this give God the, the praise is coming from Joshua, the book of Joshua. There's a, there's a scenario where, where Joshua speaks to somebody and says, my son, because he believes the guy is lying. Okay, so basically they're accusing of lying where Joshua says, my son, give glory to the God, Lord God of Israel and give praise to him by being honest. Tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. He's adjuring him to tell the truth. So this give God the glory is not about saying this is a beautiful miracle. and We want to praise God. It's saying, confess your lie. We know that this guy's a sinner. So you tell us right now what really happened. Right. What is what's what's behind this story? And so phase four of the trial begins. Right now, it's back to this guy again. We're calling the same witness to try and force him to take a side. You're a liar, so tell the truth. Tell us what we want to hear. What kind of justice is this? This is what's being said. Right? And here's where the beauty of his objectivity comes out when he answers, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Right? Like, I don't know what your problem is. Right, you're coming to me yelling at me. I told you a simple fact. I didn't tell you who Jesus was. Maybe he's a sinner. I only know. I didn't see. Now I see. Objectivity. I don't know what he is. I'm not stepping out of my lane. I'm not calling things out as though I'm an expert. If you want me to testify in your court trial, I will testify to what actually happened. What actually happened is that I was blind and now I see, that's it. And they, then they say to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You'd think that would have been one of the first questions that they asked, right? But here's the beauty of objectivity. They can't argue with him. What do you say to somebody who just said, here's the fact, right? There's nothing to answer. He didn't say he's good. He didn't say he's bad. He just said, this is what happened. So now they're flabbergasted. So they still want to fight because they just want to fight, right? So uh, what did he do, right? Um, they've gotten on his nerves now, though, because the man born blind isn't perfect. Um, but he still, in spite of his mood, tries to still keep it objective. Now he's fed up, right? We're having his back and forth. You're interviewing everyone. You've interviewed my parents. You've talked to me twice. And so he goes, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Right? Now he's getting smart Aoki, right? Because now he's calling them out on their tactics, right? He's not being uh, rude. 
right? But he's saying, what are we after here? What's new in this conversation? Nothing new has happened. Will me repeating this story change anything? What's your real intention? Are you asking because you want to join him? Are you asking because you want to learn from him? And I actually think this is not a bad skill to have these days. Sometimes it's good to ask people's intentions, right? When someone comes to talk to, about another person with you, it's not a bad idea to stop and ask them, why are you talking about this person? Why are we talking about somebody who's not here? Is it because you need to vent? Okay, you can vent without naming names. You can just say, I had a, a scenario that bothered me and this goes to the scenario. If it's really actually just venting. Is it gossip? No, thank you. I wouldn't like to be gossiped about. Is it to make me not like someone? No, thanks. Is it for me to judge a situation? What does the situation even have to do with me? Why am I being brought in to judge? When someone's intentions are not clean, they are not happy to be asked. Somebody's intentions are clean, won't be bothered by the question, right? They'll just be like, oh, no, my bad, it was because of this, right? And it'll be very simple. But if the intentions aren't that, it won't be. Go ahead, Mark. For sure. Like, I don't want to impose my character on others because for me, when I'm asking, I'm, I'm asking sincerely. And I'm not thinking that if a person messes up, that they're somehow messed up, right? But it could be like, you'd have to use your own tone, your own voice, like with how you do it. Like my bishop in, in, in LA is the one who I really learned this from, right? Because I don't know that I would have been comfortable to, right? But for example, he has as a policy and he said it to us, he said it to us in a general way. Listen, if, if a priest comes to complain about another priest, he goes, know that I'm going to do a few things. Number one, if you're coming to make a formal complaint, I'm going to ask you to go bring the other priest and say everything you're saying in front of them. If that other priest is not available or you cannot, I'm going to tell them everything you said and who it was that said it. So make sure that whatever you're saying, you know why you're saying it, right? Whereas the same bishop makes it clear that if we need to vent, he allows us to, but he's saying but it, it, it forces us to ask the question about why did I need to say someone's name? Because if I'm venting, it doesn't require that I say all the people who are involved, right? And him and his personality was able to convey it in a way that we appreciated it. So theoretically, if we have in common with one another that we're Christians, our appeal would be to the gospel to make it not self-righteous, right? Another way to do it more gently might be to be like, hey, if it's all right, I'd rather not because I don't, I feel uncomfortable talking if they're not there. Or... I know you might mean well, because they might, but I tend to judge when I hear things, right? Like, that's true for me. Like, like that's something that I say. I'm like, no, I really, I worry that I might judge, right? And so it's like, if you need to say the name, then make sure that it's relevant to say it. But there's there's different ways to not sound like a jerk. I, I usually sound like a jerk. Um, so we ask them the question of why are you asking? And because their intentions are bad, they blow up. They reviled him. They looked, they spurned him. They looked down on him saying, you are his disciple. Dude hasn't even said anything, right? You are his disciple. We were disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Who do you think you are? They're saying, we know everything. Now, the irony of this is that they don't. 
right? The irony of this is that they're also saying, we know Moses who God spoke to. And it's like, yeah, the irony is that actually the guy you're talking about is the one who spoke to Moses, right? Like that, like you don't get it, but that's who it was, right? And then what's even more ironic, right, is that they're saying as with contempt, we don't even know where he comes from. And one of the prophecies about the Messiah was they wouldn't know where he comes from, right? And so they're making this statement out loud that would be like, yeah, that's a point against you, right? Not in your favor, right? But you're speaking with this boldness. And that's what happens in general when we speak really authoritatively and don't know things, we end up looking really dumb. I've used this example before, but I did this once as a pharmacist. It was a really good humbling lesson where the script came in for, for some pet um, that a vet wrote and they wrote some some medication that I had started laughing at I'm like dude doesn't know his drugs there's no such drug and I laughed and laughed and I started showing it around the dispensary and I'm like what are we going to do with this guy this isn't even a real drug eventually when I was forced to look it up to try and figure out like what, what he was thinking it was a brand new drug that had come out within the previous couple of weeks. And he was more intelligent than the pharmacist in keeping up with the drugs, right? So it was it was me who was the moron, right? But I made fun of it, I laughed, I, I, I put the person down. In the end, the one who actually was completely moronic was myself, right? We've gotta be very careful in our speech um, with, with what we're saying. The man answered, well, this is a marvel. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So he loses it, and he appeals to their teaching. Right? He says, if he's a sinner, he shouldn't be able to do a miracle. You guys have taught us God doesn't listen to sinners. So if he's a sinner, how on earth should God listen to him? It's also interesting because the man born blind clearly knows his scripture because he's right. Never in the history of all the scripture had a man been born blind healed. Blind people had been healed. Never had there been a story of a man born blind being healed. Right? So guy outsmarted them. Right? And so he responds. Um, there's a power that comes from the truth. The man born blind could see past what they couldn't see because he actually wanted the truth. He kept to the truth. He wasn't blinded by other wants or desires or lusts. He wasn't inter interested in position in the temple like the people and the parents, right? The people and the parents were worried if we side with him, we lose our status, we lose membership to the club. Right. So that was what was driving them more than the truth. He wasn't concerned about keeping status like the Pharisees. Right. The Pharisees did not like the threat that is in this person, Jesus. He wasn't concerned about whether his opinions were good or bad. Again, like the Pharisees, he kept it simply to the truth. He did a miracle. You guys teach us that bad people can't do that. If there's a right or wrong teaching there, that's your problem. I have nothing bad to say over the one who did this to me. The end result, he's literally excommunicated, 
right? He, they cast him out means you are now thrown out of the synagogue, of the temple. You are no longer a member. You cannot participate. That was the verdict for him, literally just speaking the truth, right? And he asked them objective questions. He didn't say you guys are bad. He didn't say you're sinners. He didn't say you're liars. He literally just asked them questions and he got thrown out for it. What does Christ say? Blessed are you and persecuted for righteousness sake, because here we'll see what the Lord now does. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Right? And the son of man is a messianic prophecy from the book of Daniel. It meant something. Right? He said, anything, do you believe in the Messiah? He answered, the man were blind, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, I'm going to change the translation here for what Christ was actually saying. You have seen him, and it is I am who speaks to you. Right? He declares to him as Godhead. Right? He used the name of God. This is what we saw in the Samaritan woman. This is what the Jews who are referring to Moses were talking about. Once again, Jesus reveals himself and says, I'll tell you who I am. I am, I am. I am God. Then he says, Lord, I believe. And it's because of, again, this naming, right? Or it seems to be because of this naming, using the name of God on himself, declaring himself God. This is why he worships him, right? It wouldn't have been normal Jewish custom that if someone just says, hey, I'm Messiah, that they bow down and worship because they didn't know that the Messiah was going to be God, right? To them, it was just an anointed one. It could be normal human and they wouldn't worship a human, right? But it's his actual recognition of him as God. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So the Pharisees nearby hear him say this, and they say to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, this is the end of the trial. This trial didn't go the way that they're wanting. So here's him casting verdict. If you were blind, like this guy, you'd have no guilt. But now, because you say we see, your guilt remains, right? Here's the marvel, right? The Lord loves those who seek him, the truth. And so he looked for the man himself. Here, Christ went looking for him. It says, when he heard that this happened, Christ went up to him saying, I know you got owned because of me, right? I'm coming for you. He knew that he was persecuted for righteous snake. And he, did, he knew that this man, unlike the man by the pool, no offense, dude by the pool, didn't sell him out, right? The man by the pool came running back, going, Jesus, 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 go get him, right? Whereas this man stood his ground. And he asked them, are you seeking wisdom? Are you seeking the truth? Behold, I am is. And because of the disposition of the man's heart, he could recognize the truth in God, right? Um, the pure in heart see God person who's seeking the truth for the sake of truth, they see God. This man is pure in heart. And the analogy I like for that is saying, imagine if, if we are all, our eyes are seeing through a clear glass, right? A clear glass with, with clean water in it. So long as the water is clear, you can see through clearly. Once it becomes murky, whether because of our own sin, or because of environment, or because of our choices, and we, we, we allow this cup to be in some kind of situation where the water gets dirty, trying to see through it, you can't see clearly anymore. You just can't, right? And this is why it's the pure in heart that see God, because they have nothing 
nothing inhibiting clear vision, right? That's the beauty of this man. And the judgment of the trial is evident when he says, the verdict, you're blind while claiming to see, right? Because you have no idea that you're staring through this glass that is completely filled with all sorts of muck and you think you're seeing. The one who actually sees is this guy over here. And this is the danger of spiritual pride, right? Christ can heal spiritual blindness. He just did it for the man born blind because he was willing, right? Both of them were spiritual blind to begin with, right? Both the Pharisees and the man born blind. One had the desire for truth and could be healed from, from that. The other didn't. The, the, the Pharisees are not different from us today, right? Be careful that you don't have these presumptuous ways of speaking as though you are the source of truth, right? Because I think it's easy for us to read these and, and like, ha, you Pharisees. But I think most of us are Pharisees, myself included. We, we talk like we're the proclaimers of truth and we talk like we're the source of truth. And we hold to our opinions like they're gospel truth and they're not they rarely are and if they're true it's not true because of us and so my my way of presenting it shouldn't be in that way now this next section we've just seen these shepherds right being jerks for lack of a better word okay flaunting their power flaunting their authority really abusing the people and that's why we started with ezekiel 34 it's because that kind of attitude, that kind of mentality of everybody seeking their own is exactly what Christ was condemning. And that's why now he's, when he's saying this whole discourse they're about to look at about shepherds, it's in that context of Ezekiel 34. Because he's talking to the same people who are standing there that whole time. These are the same people who a chapter ago were being like, we believe in you. We think you're so awesome, right? We're, we're, we're here for you, Jesus. We're going to see what they say by the end of this chapter. Right. And he's also pointing out these people who just cast out this guy for nothing. Right. This is what this is the context of this chapter, because I think sometimes you read this as this cute lovey dubby hug my teddy bear chapter. Um, but it's not right. This is a firm opposition to what he sees as a social um, injustice. OK. And so this parable of the sheepfold that he's going to talk about, as we said, comes from Ezekiel 34. Um, and the Lord is saying, they, these Pharisees who just screamed and yelled at the man born blind, they are thieves and bandits with what we're about to read. I, I am, the name of God, I am is the door. I'm coming so that people like this can have life. And I am is the shepherd par excellence. I am the true shepherd, right? I am the, the type of it. Because unlike the bad shepherds from Ezekiel 34 who eat off the people, who lord off the people, who exploit the people, and who allow the sheep to die and be a prey to wolves and wild animals, that's not me. I am is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am is the one who feeds them first. All of the good shepherd part of Ezekiel 34, he's saying that's me. Right. And so that's why that context of that chapter is incredibly important to read it again, Ezekiel 34, to say, to get what Christ is saying. And so the word becoming flesh 
is committed to dying, right? That's what he's coming to. He joins the world that is dying because right after this section, right after John 10, we're going to have Lazarus dying, we're going to have Palm Sunday, and then we see him completely emptying himself, right? Being to the point of starvation and thirst, and then his humiliation, and then his suffering and his death. And that's why he's saying from now, no, my, my job here is to die because that's what good shepherds do. Um, and so he's joining that. It's the running theme through the Gospel of John, right? That there's this running trial that started from John 5 that's going through that's going to result in the capital punishment that they're dying for. He is going to die. Um, and this metaphor of the flock that we're about to, to get into obviously is all over Old Testament, right? Everybody from a kid learns the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's all sorts of verses about the sheep and the flock and of, of God being the shepherd and pasturing the sheep. Now, a shepherd was the chief occupation of the Israelites in the early days of the patriarchs. They were almost all shepherds at the beginning. So it's a big deal for them, right? Now, as cultivation of crops increased, when people could start to grow wheat and, and different things, they started to hire. It used to be that the owner himself, the person who owned everything, would do the shepherding himself. But when they started having other crops, they started hiring people to do the work. Why am I bothering to say that? Is because Christ refers to, I'm not a hireling. I'm not the guy that you hired to do the work. I'm the actual shepherd, right? And what was the role of the shepherd? Well, the shepherds were always guarding the flock, right? They required perpetual care because they are practically defensive. Sheep are extremely submissive right? And they trust a shepherd. They're different from goats, right? Goats are able to do certain things more on their own, but sheep need that constant attention, right? Um, and shepherds would need to wander out to find food and water for the sheep, right? They don't have this constant source, right? So they're, the shepherd will be inconvenienced to try and find a way to make sure that the sheep have access to food and water. They have to protect them from wild animals, right? From lions, bears, and wolves, right? Shepherds, sheep are, forgive me, kind of stupid, right? They're just nonchalant and they go places. And so the shepherd has to be constantly watching to make sure none of them are going to random places to bring them back, back in. Lost sheep, expecting um, ewes, mothers, newborn lambs, sick animals, they would receive very special attention. Sometimes the shepherd would need to, to put it around his neck and carry it, right? These were all different tasks associated with, this, with the shepherd. And the only instrument that the shepherd had was a cloak, a rod, or a staff, right? And the rod was sometimes used to bring in the sheep, but when it was used violently, it was against the, the, the enemy, not against the sheep, right? Um, so the Lord is now pointing at that whole crew that were just yelling at him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way. So he's talking about where the sheep are, are kept at night. There'd be a door, right? And they used to keep their staff low when the sheep were entering to one by one count them as they go in to make sure that none are lost. So they'd have that door and then that door is shut. He's saying, so nobody enters this safe haven, the sheepfold, this place where they stay, except by the door. Anyone who climbs in in any other way than the door is a thief and a robber, right? But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out his own, 
he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. As stranger, they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am, pointing at himself, I am is the door. I am is the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Direct reference is equal 34. But the sheep did not heed them. I am is the door. If anyone enters by me, the door, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the Lord is referencing himself now as the gate for the sheep. And that's all over messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. Again, he's trying to make it clear who he is. This is the gate of the Lord to which the righteous may enter. We say this, we're entering here, but Christ is saying, I am that. I am is that door. Um, and the shepherd had to keep alert for strays, etc. So the Lord is saying, I'm the door. I'm the entry into safety. Right? And if you come straight forth through the door, then, you're, then, then you know that, that, that the real shepherd is that person. Anybody who's sneaky is going to use something else. A person who's in the truth, who's in the shepherd, who's in the true shepherd, is going to enter through the door. But the real shepherd is, is really intimate with the sheep. Right. I don't I don't like the like a shepherd. Actually, it was not uncommon for a shepherd to have a flute and he would chill with the sheep and play. Right. And so there's there's a, there's a there's there's an affection going on. It's not just a task management thing that's going on. And so the Lord is saying, I'm that one who holds you when you need it, that I know your name, that I'm I'm, I'm one by one seeing you come in. I'm the one who's playing the flute and enjoying the music with you. That's what the true shepherd is like. But thieves, bad shepherds, they only come to steal and kill and destroy. Not me. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am is the good shepherd. Now remember when we read Ezekiel 34, where God said about himself, I am the good shepherd. And so Christ saying, I am as a good shepherd is an explicitly saying, I'm God. I'm God, the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Coming soon. He who is a hireling, like we said, they sometimes got people, and not a shepherd. And who is he calling, who's accusing of being hirelings now? The Pharisees, the priests, the high priests, the leading government, whose own the sheep are not. See the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. Like you're, you guys are in it for yourselves, right? You're not in it for the sheep. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them, he flees because he's a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. As the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, the Gentiles coming soon, I must bring them also and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down to my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This charge I received from my father. There is again a division among the Jews because of these words. So these are the people we just said that like in the sequence of John 7 through 10, we're like, oh, we love you. You're so good. You've got cool miracles. We think you're a big deal. These are the same people who are now saying he has a demon and he is mad. Why listen to him? They're literally saying, 
dude's psycho, right? Like, like he's officially lost it. He's crazy, right? There's, there's no other way to say this. Others said, but these are not the sayings of one who has a demon, right? There's some that are being a little bit objective. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They're still torn over this action. Now, it was the Feast of the Dedication at Jerusalem, which is Hanukkah. It was winter and Jews was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, okay, this whole fight for the last few chapters has been about who you are. So they asked him directly, verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're Christ, okay, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and said, I told you. And you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness to me. But you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. You want it plainly? Here it is. I'm God. Now, this is a big deal because in Jewish scripture, um, the recitation, their creed, if you will, was here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And the word one there is not one numerically, right? There's a one that means unity and there's a one that means single. The word used is the unity one, the same unity that we say that two flesh become one when they're married. That word for one is not a numeric one, it's a united one. And so Christ is drawing attention to it, saying, I and my father are that one. Right? It's one of the indirect kind of pointing at the Trinity theology that we all struggle with. But to look at this whole section, the shepherd is looking for the well-being of the sheep to protect them, to care for them. And the shepherd gives freedom, a general freedom to the flock. When you look at this image that the Lord is giving, like divorce it right now from the fight, right? And just look at this analogy the Lord is giving about his relationship to us is that these sheep that he has, he's, he cares about protecting them from harm. He's giving them a general freedom to just do whatever they do. And he's not micromanaging individual sheep, right? He's running after the individual sheep when there is need. But the norm is for the whole flock to be together. And I'm, I'm emphasizing this because Western culture is so individualistic. And we're all about me and God, right? Me and my personal needs, my personal relationship with God. And we've divorced ourselves from the context of community. But there is never a model in the Bible about God having a relationship only with individuals. He has a relationship with the whole people of God. There is individual care. He knows their names. But the norm is this tending to the whole people. When there's a particular need, yes, he does step in. Right, He does do those things, but he is not micromanaging individual sheep. The normal is that flock. And I'm saying that because do you look for individualized attention at all times, both from God and from your earthly fathers, right? Where were you when? You should do this. Nobody did this. Nobody did this. Nobody did this. Is that how we talk? Or because people have this, do you want to be micromanaged? Because that's not God's personality. Right, because sometimes we want God to be who He's not. It is not God's personality to micromanage us. It's not ever been His thing. 
And do you want special attention always or only when it's needed? Because I think we often want to be that favorite kid, right? We want to be around his neck all the time when maybe there's somebody who needs to be in that space and not me at that time. But the most important thing here to me is he kept on repeating, my sheep know me, my sheep know my voice. He's not talking about volume. He's talking about recognition, right? It's that the continual presence of the sheep with the shepherd, that's how they know him, right? How does a dog behave with a stranger versus with a known friend? Because they know each other, right? And it can, it can hear out his master's voice and style and mood even, right? How many of you have had pets that know your mood? right? That they can tell when you're down. You didn't talk to your pet and say, by the way, I'm upset, right? And yet they sometimes know that you need to cuddle or that you're upset, or they know that you're hyper and excited and they start bouncing around. They know, they know you, right? It's not your voice. It's not the volume. And this is why compartmentalizing God is so dangerous. It leads to your monumental confusion when suddenly you want to hear God's voice and know what God thinks when you've never spent time with God. And then you suddenly are wondering, how do I know God? It's because you don't know him, because you don't spend time with him, right? Relationship happens through shared being. It's not the activities. It's not the walk with the shepherd that made the sheep know the shepherd. But the sheep knowing the shepherd included walking, Right? And the reason I'm saying that is because we want to reduce our relationship with God to activities. What do you want? I confessed. What do you want? I had communion. What do you want? I fasted. I stood up and prayed for 15 minutes. Where it's like, but that's not relationship. Those are part of relationship, but that's not the relationship. Right? If I were to define my relationship with my closest friends as uh, it's because we had uh, meals together and um, we sometimes called and we sometimes texted and therefore we are friends. That's not a logical flow. But my friendship definitely involved texting, spending time, having dinners and going on trips. It's just that that's not the relationship. The relationship included them. And we don't do that with God. Right. And so we start assigning tasks and being like, I stood up and prayed. Good for you. Right? Imagine if you're married and be like, what do you want? I spoke to you for an hour already. Right? And it's like, I just wanted you to be around. Well, no, I already spent 73 minutes. Right? We already did that activity. I would like to do another activity now. Right? Like if you reduce it to activities, you're not in a relationship. You're in some kind of contract. Right? We have to move beyond that. Um, I'm going to rush through this because I know for, for timing my bad. Do you, seek, do you seek to be a good shepherd or a king in your service or in how you deal with others. Because God is giving a pastoral model. The conflicts of the Jews was a kingly one. It was one of authority. Or are you approaching church and spiritual life and pastoral care with a governmental or executive approach? Because I think this is a big disease in our churches today right? Where we want it to be very bureaucratic. We want it to be very executive. We want deliverables and measurables and, and return on investment. And we start speaking a language that has nothing to do with family. 
right? But church is supposed to be family. Um, I'll read this last section and I, I won't like uh, uh, comment on it. I was saying that this, this last section that we're gonna do is now the beginning of that shift, which is gonna be monumentally triggered in the next chapter, chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus, of the movement now saying, all right, my cards are on the table. I just called myself I am. I just said I and my father are one. The debate of the last two chapters, like who's your father? Who do you really mean? Has become abundantly clear. He's saying, no, I'm not talking about Joseph. I'm talking about God. Me and him are one. I am, pointing to himself, is God. Now they're ready. All uh, capital, um, all capital punishment is warranted now. You've blasphemed. You've said all sorts of horrible things. You've broken the Sabbath. And so now they've lost it. Verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered him, we stone you for no good work, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. I said I wasn't going to comment, but I'm going to. Sorry. This part here is really interesting because you see how God uses critical thinking. And one of the prophecies was they'll fall into their own nets and about how able the Messiah would be in responding to them because the Lord responds to them with their own scripture that they don't even know how to answer. He confounds them, right? Because they're blind, he confounds them by using their own scripture to say, you're saying that I made myself a God. Well, what do you make of, he says to them, is it not written in your law? The law that you accept, I said you are gods. It's according to scripture. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be nullified, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Basically, your own scripture allows you to say this. So why are you mad that I am? Now, Here's the real question of point of truth. If I am not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. If what I'm doing is not the work of God, I'm telling you, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, at least believe the works. That you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they tried to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John at first baptized, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Sorry, that was a little on the long side. Um, any um, quick questions before um, we start Tazbaha and then liturgy at uh, 10? Go ahead, Mark. Mm -hmm. Oh no, he physically prostrated himself down to the ground. Yeah, that would be one form. Is that anybody who is worthy of worship, which also could include kings, 
um, the, the physical sign of showing your littleness next to their greatness was that prostration. That's actually one of the reasons why when we want to, in the church, reconcile with someone, why we do a prostration. It's saying, let me physically show you I'm, I'm considering myself the lower, the smaller, um, and putting you in the position of the greater. So I can read more about what he might particularly mean. I didn't spend much time on that verse. I don't think I could ever take that to be um, a once saved, always saved, quote unquote, proof or evidence. Um, because if we take it with the whole of the gospels and, and epistles, right, we see all sorts of, of verses from even the Lord himself of saying, be careful lest you be cast into Gehenna, right? Of saying, I don't know you even, you did, even though you did all these good things, right? And so I think a better question worthy of interpretation that I don't know if anybody could answer with complete absolute certainty is who are his, right? Like, like how did you determine who are his? Because to say that I'm his by declaring Jesus as God is that what makes you his, which is most people who are the proponent of that view would be saying, right? To which James would answer, well, the devil says that too, right? And so is it by the act of baptism, right? Like, and who decided that that's how one stays his? Because even, even then, right? Like the apostles say, lest I preach to all of you and lose my own. Right, so if anybody considered themselves his, I'm sure the apostles did, and yet they didn't have that confidence. So whatever it is that the Lord means, I don't think it was that. Um, what he actually means is definitely worthy, I think, of more reading because I don't think I could say precisely what he actually means, as much as I could negate that. But fair question. Word. So there's one question online and then I'll, I'll, I'll end it there. Um, you're saying the man born blind is being objective um, with positive connotation and his parents being objective and not speaking truth with the negative connotation. To me, both the parents and the man born blind said similar, similar things. Why was the man's word words greater than his parents? Actually, that's what I was clarifying uh, during it was to make the point of saying that they did speak the truth, but they were speaking the truth evasively trying to omit certain things or lead in a certain way to not take responsibility for the truth. So objectively, they didn't say anything wrong or untrue. Um, the difference is one was cowering in fear to avoid a particular situation. Um, uh, would it be possible to repeat the in-person questions? Yes, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, the man 
did the man not say the same thing? That's a follow-up from the same question. No, he didn't. The man born blind was willing to say everything as is. He wasn't positioning in any way, right? And that's why when they keep on trying to nail him for what he's saying, um, he's just like, what do you want? Like, like we're going around in circles, which shows that he wasn't avoiding or he wouldn't even bother going there. He would have called it a game when he could. But we'll end there because I think for time and we, we, we need to. Um, we'll end with our Father there. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, one in God, Amen. Lord, hear us when we pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not in temptation, but this from evil one in Christ, you, O Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.